Hello and welcome to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. I'm Peter Mikato and while the Australian Open for 2021 and the Australian Summer has been completed successfully, we thought we'd just stick around and, and give you one more podcast from Australia. Chris Bowers is alongside me. He's hung around in Australia. Nice to see you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great. We'll have to send you back at some stage. You can't stay here forever. Oh, okay. But we've had a chance to relax, we've had a chance to unwind, we've had a chance to refresh, and we've had a chance to reflect. And some interesting interviews that you're going to be hearing on ATP Tennis Radio in the coming months that, that Chris, you've done throughout the Australian summer. It was great to, to chat with plenty of players, but we thought for this one would be a special podcast that we present, and it revolves around the Australian Tanasi Kokonakis, who has been just continually injured. We know the talent that he's got. We know the ability that he has. We know he can beat the very best in the world. He has shown that, but his body has been letting him down time after time after time. He's got himself back fit and firing again. He had a big Australian Open campaign. He ran into Stefanos Tsitsipas, a match that he pushed Tsitsipas to five sets. We saw in his earlier round win that he had, the emotion that came out. It's been a long journey. You had the opportunity to talk to him. Yes, I mean, he's always been a very eloquent young man. He's 24 years old now. And uh, I was struck by the fact that Nick Kyrgios is not only still a good mate, played doubles with him, but said that when he beat Ugo Umber in the second round, that uh, he was seriously impressed with the way Kokonakis had stuck at tennis, that he had every good reason for giving up. And so when I actually sat down with uh, Kokonakis, I was keen to hear his positive story in terms of how he fought through but also some of the demons and I going into the interview I wasn't quite sure how hard to push because you you want to actually encourage someone to talk but at the same time you don't want to get too much into their private sphere because you know sometimes they've come through some really difficult times and it's up to them how much they want to talk but fortunately i found him ready to open up probably for the first time because he has been reluctant to talk too much about that but uh, as as he um left the room with me he said thanks mate uh, appreciate you asking me in a way that I could talk about this and maybe I should talk a little bit more about it. Just a, a young man who is willing to admit that he had to deal with, uh, you know, some very low periods. And actually that has highlighted the fact that it is a tough ask to keep your emotional and mental equilibrium when you're on this weird and wonderful treadmill called the World Tennis Tour. Well, here is Chris Bowers' conversation with Tanasi Kokonakis. Tanasi, you've been a bit of a byword for injuries for much of your career, and yet you're back now. How does it feel to have played an Australian Open and done reasonably well at it? Yeah, it's good. I always, I always kind of look forward to these moments in Australia. Um, having that energy and that crowd usually is, uh, is why we play and why, as a young kid growing up, you want to get to this level. So it's been definitely a rough couple of years for me, but I'm hoping everything's um, behind me. I need to keep, uh, keep on track, keep working hard, and, and show some of the, the good tennis I'm capable of playing. The last couple of years hasn't been your first setbacks. You had the big shoulder problems about six years ago. You were decent enough to admit that that was a little bit of vanity, that you were actually yeah. working too much on your shoulder muscles. Is that yeah. true? There's uh, there's some partial trueness to it. A little bit, I kind of screwed up playing basketball as well. But uh, no, it is. it was a little bit of vanity involved. But I think bottom line was there was something structurally there that wasn't right. So definitely took a little bit to come get back from that. But the issue with obviously a long-term injury is coming back. All the other muscles are slightly deconditioned when you want to come back too soon. Sometimes other things go that usually would be fine. So 
um, yeah, it's definitely a tricky moment, but uh, I'm working my way. You know, everyone has their different journey, but um, I'm happy to be back playing tennis and hopefully I can stay healthy. When you have a, a long injury break and then when you get back, something else goes, how demoralizing is it? Very. Um, it's brutal because only the people, you know, the spectators uh, see just the product on the court, but they don't always see, especially people that don't really know tennis that well, don't see all the hours and, and uh, hours you put into trying to get yourself back into shape or into competitive shape. Um, and then the anxiety that comes with competing after not playing for a while. So um, only the people close to you, uh, coaches, friends, trainers, um, family, that uh, are with you every step of the way, uh, see all the work you put in. So um, it's, it's definitely, definitely very demoralizing and tricky. You had that good comeback. You beat Roger Federer in Miami, and yet that was your last victory for over a year. I mean, if you'd known that at the time, I guess that would still have been a great success, beating Federer, and yet it was the start of another long road back. Yeah, well, the next match after, I had, had chances to win against Vadasco, and then the very next tournament, I played Monte Carlo. I fractured my kneecap playing, falling on the sponsor's sign. So I think that's just luck more than anything at that point. So um, sometimes these things happen, but I've worked hard to kind of turn it around. Um, it's obviously, that was obviously a great victory for me, but I think every time I have come back, I've been able to show glimpses of what I can do. So for me, it's about staying consistent and putting it together. And as well as the injuries, you also had the illness of the glandular fever. Yeah. How long did that really rob you of strength for? Yeah, wow. And you never know when you're fully recovered because obviously you hear the stories and you've got to be um, careful that um, you don't come back too soon because then you hear the stories about Sodling and Anchich about um, having that mono and chronic fatigue uh, for a long period of time. So I wanted to make sure I was over the hump. It's hard to really know, but you just have to be gradual in your progress back. And I think that wiped me out for probably about six or so, so six or seven months until I felt like I was back to complete full strength. What was the lowest point of your injury and illness period? Oh, I've had many, many low points. Um, definitely battled some mental health demons, a little bit of depression and anxiety for sure throughout the way. Um, I think normal for a lot of athletes, um, sometimes especially when you feel like you're, you're not quite uh, where you were predicted to be or you haven't quite lived up to the effort. And for me, it was all kind of body-based at a time it was really just weighing on me mentally I I told my coaches a lot of times that I don't think I can I can play this sport anymore my body won't let me and then my body's not letting me so I'm trying to play out there hampered and then I'm putting on this bad product on court when I know I have more in me um, and then you start to have the self-doubt um, and when you're just growing up being a tennis player and and you feel like that's what you've been put here to do and um, that, that's your job and you can't do it and you can't even do it remotely well. Um, it really affects you mentally and you feel like you're not kind of, you're not worthy of, uh, of kind of going around. So that was, that was definitely the toughest part. So how close did you come to quitting? Oh, very close. I mean, after the shoulder surgery, I played a tournament in Lyon against Dennis Easterman and I played an absolute shocker. Um, my body was hurting, I didn't feel great. I told my coach, I'm like, I have, I think I had protected rankings left um, at that end of the year. And I was like, if I can't, if I'm not happy with how I'm playing, I've got three more grand slams. If I'm not happy with what I can do or where my body's at after these moments, um, I think I'm done. And he said, it's fine. So I'm like, I'm going to give it a crack for the rest of the year. And, and luckily I was able to have some good results. But again, fast track a few years later, and then I come back qualified Aussie Open, and then I tear my pec um, pretty badly against uh, Taro Daniel. Um, even I was felt like I was pretty much playing with an underarm serve the whole match, uh, and yeah, that was that was a tough moment. A, a lot of a lot of setbacks. It's been there's too many to name, but I've definitely come close a lot of times. So what do you think really got you back to the fact that you are now competing again? 
Well, I just tried to look back on the... Well, I definitely leaned on my family and friends uh, a lot. Um, I tried to remember the times where my body was good um, and showed the victories that I'm capable of. Um, and just I tried to just get myself back to that point and did what it takes. You know, I can't play tennis forever, so I thought while I'm relatively young, I'm just going to keep keep giving it a crack and see what happens. I can always do something else after, but I know I can't just pick up tennis when I hit 30 or 35 and just have another crack. So I want to kind of go while I'm relatively young and, and just see what happens. You said a few minutes ago that you were meant to play tennis. Did you get the enjoyment back, which really confirmed that sense that this is what you were meant to do? Whenever you have good wins and you're able to play on, well, not even wins, but whenever you're able to play on a big court and have that good crowd and then show some of the tennis that you know you maybe know you're capable of in practice um, and, and the crowd gets enjoyment for that, that's, that's what kind of confirms the decision to keep playing. Um, again, everything starts on the practice court, knowing you can play and then putting it on the match court is a different story. So for me, that's why it was important to kind of get out here in front of a home crowd and, and take it to one of the best players because I think it showed people um, what I'm capable of and hopefully they can keep backing me and supporting me. That was the City Pass match here at the Australian Open. Amazing atmosphere. Did that give you a sense of it was all worth it? Yeah, definitely. Obviously, I would have liked to get the win, but it wasn't meant to be. I had just haven't had enough matches and conditioning in the past couple of years. And again, someone that uh, and Stefanos has stayed healthy, done everything right. Obviously, shows one is one of the best players in the world. Um, but yeah, for me, it, it does show it's worth it. Um, I think 12 months time, I'll be better for it. Um, and it was just yeah, it's just good being back at home crowd and and showing people what I think I already knew about myself. You're only 24. These days, most players tend to peak somewhere between about 26 and 32. I mean, the best still could be to come. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm definitely not, not at my peak yet. Um, I've definitely got a lot of ways to go. Um, and and that's, that's, I guess, the, the positive thing about the other day was because I know how far behind I am on matches and physicality as those guys and my tennis stood up. Um, and, and nearly beat one of the best players in the world. So um, I feel like when I do put it all together, I feel like, yeah, the sky's the limit for me, hopefully. And uh, we'll see. I'm just going to keep pushing and, and trying to stay healthy, and then we'll see what happens. And are you doing anything different to allow you to play with confidence? Because there will be injuries in the future. And yeah. Obviously, you need to make sure that they aren't the same setbacks as you've had in the past, but they are just little things that you can get over in a few weeks. It's tough sometimes. I think for me, it's just having the right people around me, um, having people that I trust and that they trust me. Um, they listen to my body and, and I'm honest with them about what I'm feeling. Um, and then from there, it's just being smart about my loading and, and when to peak and when to kind of have some down weeks and my rest days. And, and obviously, everybody's, everybody, everyone's body is different. Uh, but for me, I've got to be smart with managing my high days and my low days um, as far as sort of stress on the body goes and then just going from there. And I think accumulative matches will, uh, will head me in the future. COVID pandemic may well give you a, an easier schedule in that there will be fewer tournaments. Um, do you feel that you've got in mind the right schedule or the, a given number of matches that you should play in a year that you will be able to keep moving forward without overloading your body? I'm not sure. It's, it's definitely tricky. I think, yeah, I've got to be smart. Obviously, I'm not going to play a lot of back-to-back -back tournaments this year. Um, I've got to look after my health and safety as well because uh, if I travel and, and happen to catch COVID, that's going to set me back for a little bit as well and then that's going to put my uh that's going to put everything i've done physically just away so i've got to be smart about where i'm traveling and be smart and be healthy um so i can have a bit of continued sort of progress there are a lot of people in all walks of life who suffer physical and in particular mental health issues yeah. 
without going too deep into the demons you had to battle, what can you say to others, not just tennis players, but people who may be suffering from aspects of mental health, some identified, some not, from your own experience that can help other people get through? From my experiences, I I was very fortunate. I have a great family, um, very good support staff that I can lean on and and bounce some ideas. Um, But... For me, it's about just doing what makes you happy um, and trying to just do more, keep positive people and good influences around you um, and doing things that kind of feel like you put you in a better space mentally and trying to get through that period and, and do more of the things that make you happy over a long period of time and then eventually, hopefully, get yourself back together. I think getting back in physical shape definitely helped me. Um, but again, having having a lot of positive people around you and people that you trust and can, can lean on, uh, it was definitely the biggest thing for me. And when you go on a tennis court now, are you happy? I am happy. I am happy to play. Um, if I'm healthy, I'm happy. So that's the big thing. Yes, it was wide-ranging, the, uh, the interview. And it was great to hear from Tanasi and, you know, getting out the other side because there were those moments where he thought he may never step out on a tennis court ever again and maybe had to prepare for life outside, which in, its, in the initial sense would be quite frustrating because we know he's got the talent and the ability to match it with the best of the world. And that's what he wants to do. That's what he spent his life doing. And to have that potentially taken away and sort of grapple with the reality of, okay, well, what else am I going to do? You can understand why these players, after all the effort that they've put in and through no fault of their own, you know, their body lets them down. You can understand why mental health is so important, not just for the players who are out there week in, week out, but the ones who are trying to get there week in, week out. Yes, and I think what's most relevant to people in any walk of life doesn't have to be a tennis player it could be somebody who just goes to their office or their factory to do their work you know five days a week is that he said the important thing that got him through was being surrounded by good people by friends by family and I think actually it's very easy for us to assume that oh yeah people need certain drugs or they need certain therapies or they need to you know some sort of cathartic experience well yes some of those may help but ultimately it was friends that got him through it was people around him and i think that actually sometimes the most important lesson is the simplest one it's an interesting one too because to provide a bit of context because our listeners all around the world who listen to this podcast and our atp tennis radio output from tournaments they're very knowledgeable about the sport but there'll be some who would come in and go well, what are they complaining about? Because, you know, they earn lots of money and they travel from place to place and they get pampered and looked after. But the reality is, yes, okay, the players right at the very top might experience that, but they had to battle their way through. If you go below that level, you know, players, yes, they might be earning great prize money. For example, you know, a lot was made of the first round of the Australian Open, the money that, that comes in there. But that's not money that gets banked as uh, profit. That's money that keeps you going on the tour. And to understand, and it'd be great you know, to, to talk to more of these players who are on the Challenger Tour, but also playing 250s, to get an understanding of, you know, show us your budget. Because a lot of players would end up losing money. And if you can't have that success, the mental health side of it is going to suffer too. Because you build up to go to a place, a tournament, you enter... You do all the practice, you get there in plenty of time, you lose first round, you have to leave, go somewhere else again. It's very, very hard. And it's something that, you know, we see all the glitz and glamour right at the very top. But, you know, at the, the lower levels, it is an important issue. Yes, and I think it's important to stress that anybody who thinks they know about the tennis tour 
needs to go to a challenger tournament yeah. to actually see the reality of it. We see at Grand Slams and even you know, the top ATP events, all the players have the same logo on their shirts, shorts, socks, sometimes different shoe uh, manufacturer. You go to the challenger circuit and you'll see players with a shirt from one company, shorts from another company, because it's what they've picked up. And sometimes they've been gifts from other people. Yes. The economics of the tennis tour, the, the, the income curve is so, so sharp. And also it makes a massive difference. If you are, say, 120 in the world and you are the number one in your country and there's a certain tennis tradition, you will probably get some sponsorships, some endorsements from that, which will mean your financial situation is a lot better. If you are the number 120 in the world and you are, say, Spanish or French, you will be about the number 12 in your country. Yes. And therefore, you, you know, even tennis fans in your country won't know you. And it's really tough from country to country, from player to player. And I think also that for those players who've managed to get anywhere near the top 100, they will have had to give so much time in their childhood that they will not have seen that much of the real world. And yes, they will have spent plenty of time in hotels, but what do they know of... Uh, you know, of, of of the world's social problems. What do they know of even having a good party with their former school friends? And I say former because I suspect some of them left school at 14, 15, 16 to go to special tennis schools. And therefore they are faced with a strange reality. And if that reality then gets threatened by a pandemic or by an injury or by anything, then suddenly where, what have they got left? And it takes a very, very intact person someone who's very at home in their own skin to be able to deal with that and say, oh, OK, so what I've been doing since I was seven years old, sort of finished now, I'll move on to something else. Yeah, very few like people that. are able to do that without a terrible sense of my life has fallen apart. And therefore, I think we have to understand tennis players in context. And uh, that's why I am so delighted when I meet somebody who is a top te tennis player and who can talk fluently and eloquently about it because it shows that they've actually had the emotional intelligence to process what they've seen and, and develop into a rounded individual. And that's, for me, what, what um, most impressed me about Kokonakis. It's good to see the ATP taking uh, the lead on this as well. They've got the partnership with Sporting Chance and Headspace, which is putting some... Um, initiatives in place to help players so the the 24 7 helpline so they uh, triage team of therapists they can talk to someone around the clock no matter where they are in the world and then you know be referred on to therapists who are experienced in terms of walking uh, working with um, sports people headspace provide that mindfulness as well it can provide some really good resources for players as they're traveling around i mean it's not just the the players who have been injured but you know Nick Kyrgios has spoken about his battles that he's had um, with with depression and he's one that, that does earn a lot of money and is right at the, the sharp end of the men's game but it doesn't matter whether you're right at the very top or number a thousand in the world it, it it's not a it doesn't discriminate this sort of thing. No and Kyrgios is an interesting one because one of the things Kyrgios said in the interview he gave I think it was back in November when he admitted that he was um, that he'd been battling with depression certainly on and off was that he said nobody really wants to see me for who I am they like what they see of me on a tennis court they want to use that they want to make money out of me but they don't actually see who I am and therefore they're always having a go at me whenever they think I do something that's a bit wrong 
And actually, I think, yes, I, I get that. Because, you see, Kyrgios is one of these interesting and interested people who looks at the tennis circuit and says, yeah. do I really want to be practicing three, four hours a day? I enjoy hitting tennis balls, you know, and I'm happy to hit against somebody and see if I can win the last point rather than they win the last point. But really putting all this stuff in, having to go through this circus, that's why I think he had no difficulty saying, I'm not going to travel if I'm going to have to go through two weeks of quarantine if I want to come home. I think he was uh, somebody who said, um, I am being given an unfair press here because I think he is misunderstood. I like to feel that I know where he's coming from. Uh, he's got to be careful he doesn't want it both ways, that he doesn't want the um, uh, all the kudos for being the most interesting person in the tennis circuit without the responsibility that goes with that. But I was seriously impressed with the way he spoke, both after his victories and his defeats at the Australian Open. I mean, the victory against Hugo Umbe, his on-court interview, showed a maturity that I haven't seen for a while. Um, and even after losing to team, I thought he was very level-headed. And that, I think, has come partly because he was willing to admit that he has suffered from depression. But, you know, more players are talking about it. Which is great. And I think that's important. Yes. And, you know, even going back um, three or four generations, there was a player in the late 60s, early 70s called Cliff Ritchie, mm. first generation of professionals. He was known as the bad boy of tennis. And it took him until about 2010 to really come clean about that. And he wrote a book called Acing Depression. It's still available on the... You can find it on a few internet um, book sites. Um, and... That was him talking about, yeah, I was the bad boy of tennis, but actually that was my way of expressing how I was deeply depressed about the whole thing. And he was the first generation of it. Um, others have talked since. I mean, even Federer has talked about it. He hasn't talked about him being depressed, but he said we've got to keep an eye out for people who get depressed. Andre Agassi's book um, yes. has some interesting aspects about that. One of the things that I don't feel entirely rings true about Agassi's book is the way he talks about having hated tennis. I don't think you can win eight Grand Slam titles without having had some sort of love. I can understand him saying I hated tennis at times, but a sustained hate? Not sure. But the fact that he even said that is a sign of him battling these mental health demons. Well, another player that has had mental health demons is Robin Soderling. Indeed. And one of the big questions was, where is Robin Soderling? What's been happening? ATP Uncovered caught up with Robin, and he talks about his mental health struggles. Well, thanks for coming on and chatting with us a little bit. Emotional health is a big topic. So tell me a little bit about uh, this last emotional post, sharing your story and kind of what made this time seem right to talk about it. There's a famous radio show in Sweden where you speak for 90 minutes about whatever you want. And I've been asked, I think, the last four or five years to do it, uh, but I didn't feel ready. So this year I did it. But then I realized, okay, but the only Swedish people understands. So I just wanted to uh, to put it out myself on my own uh, social media. I just wanted to tell it in my in my own words. You know, the only reason why I decided to speak about it is is because I hope that I could, if I could just help one player or one person, it's uh, it's enough for me. It's good enough. So, Robin, did you struggle with uh, anxiety and mental issues throughout your career? I mean, the thing, it, it feels like it just happened overnight, you know, from one day to another, I was a completely different person. But it happened after I won the tournament uh, in Bostad 2011 in July. 
And I remember going back home and I, I remember realizing, okay, I'm not going to play until whatever it was, Toronto or Montreal. And that was a few weeks away. And I felt just like, okay, finally I can relax a little bit. And it all just came up. And then since then it was just there, you know, it was, it was a terrible time for, for many, many years. And especially in the beginning, because I never experienced anything like that before. And I was just, I didn't have any idea what was happening to me. I feel like as an athlete, we are all expected to show no weakness and to, to fight through things. And what would you recommend to other athletes that sort of deal with the same pressure? I think it's really difficult to have someone to speak to. You know, of course, I had a, a mental coach uh, who trained me, but I was always speaking about, or I was always working about performing, you know, how to perform even more. I just needed someone to speak to about, you know, other things, you know, how I felt. To become a professional player, or professional athlete, you know, the sport needs to be a big part of your life. But the danger is, is when it becomes your whole life. Choosing to have an apple, I was thinking, is this good or bad for my tennis? You know, should I go to the cinema today? No, maybe not. I need to sleep nine hours, not eight. Uh, and that was the case for me. You know, it was my basically my whole life. Basically, everything I cared about this was tennis. So, Robin, do you think that stress and anxiety is just like a byproduct of individual sport? No, I think, you know, if you want to become a professional athlete, any sport, not just tennis, you know, you have to train extremely hard, you have to be really focused. But as you said, you need to find that balance because I think that's just a certain amount of stress and training that the body can actually absorb. Robin, thanks for sharing your story. You know, I think it's, you know, it's a big deal in the sports world, in elite athletes, but especially in tennis. Unfortunately, it's a big problem. I and mean, not only in sport, uh, sports, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a problem these days in today's society. And no matter if you're doing sport or, or, or work with some, something else. So it's something that needs to be uh, spoken about a lot more, I think. So that was Robin Soderling. We talked about some of the other famous uh, names. You mentioned them a little bit earlier in the podcast, Chris. But this is an interesting story. It is. And the most interesting part for me is that this came after his peaks. He got to the French Open final in 2009. He repeated the feat in 10. Um, and it, it was in 2011 when it all happened. It was uh, during a, a lull. And that tells me that so much of dealing with mental health is distraction. It's a bit like that moment that we all have when we turn the light out at the end of the day. That's the one time of day when you can't distract yourself. Until you fall asleep, you are there with your own thoughts. And I think it's interesting that Söderling should have had that situation and that he was asked for so many years to go on that program where he talked about the subject and eventually he did. And now he says, I'd like to get this out more, uh, you know, more into the open. And, you know, good for him, because at the time it was reported that he had uh, mononucleosis. And I think actually one of the issues about this is that it's not a sign of weakness to say I have had mental health issues. The term mental health issues covers so many things now. And I think it's important to stress that this happens in all walks of life. And Absolutely. And particularly these times as well when there's, uh, 
you know, lockdown impacts and isolation and quarantining and travelling and, and yes. you know, fears about travelling and c- catching exactly. the virus and all of that sort of stuff. And you don't necessarily have your support network around you because you can't have access to them. But while we've talked about, you know, the sport and how it's affected some players, in a general sense, though, the thing about tennis is it's a good way if you do have mental health issues. I mean, this is not... It's a tennis podcast, obviously, so it's you know, no brainer that we're going to promote uh, promote the sport. But it's that opportunity to, you know, get fresh air, to be playing sport, general exercise. It can be played at a, a moderate level. It can be played at a beginner level. It can be played by all age groups and age le- age levels. And we've seen um, numerous things. Um, one of our colleagues that we've been working with here in Australia, Louise Fleming, has an excellent program that that she set up where she. Um, has a hit with homeless people and gets them out onto the court and gives them um, an extra purpose, I guess, and helps with their mental health and then refers on to, um, you know, mental health services and, and all of those sort of things. It's a great program, but it shows the power that tennis has too that can help people who might be struggling. Yes, and uh, in particular, we know that the four pillars of uh, general health, both mental and physical, are eat well, sleep well, take regular exercise and keep your stress levels low and the the, the ability to beat the cover off a poor defenseless tennis ball <laughs> is actually uh, tremendous for feeling good um, you run around I've, I've even when I've lost a tennis match to come off feeling that I have sweated out the toxins is just a wonderful feeling. And you do it with somebody and at the end of a match you shake hands and unless you've got a particular feud with them, you generally have a chat afterwards. It may not be a drink in the clubhouse bar at the moment because around the world clubhouse bars are closed because clubhouses are closed for uh, to contain the virus. But it is actually a social game and it is a physical game that has an awful lot going for it. We just mustn't forget that it is not immune to those aspects, especially at the level where people are under pressure to achieve, that can actually lead them to feeling that the world is a hostile and unfriendly place. And it's, you know, when you think about it, most of us will meet our friends through work. In tennis, professional tennis, the people you're likely to meet will be people that you're competing against. Yes. Which means you're never going to want to give too much away, which means you'll never get too close. And I suspect the best tennis friendships are ones that develop after people's careers finish. Yes, exactly. Well, it's been an interesting discussion. We need to let you go back home. Uh, You've been here long enough. I have been here. I'm kicking you out of the country. All right, and it's just getting warm enough back in my country that they might not—they uh, might not envy me in my suntan. Well, look, I'm I'm passing the ATP Tennis Radio podcast baton on to you because it's been in Australia. You're going to have to take it back to Europe with you, and then it'll go over to the United States, and it'll be shared around over the coming weeks as we make our way through the tour. And fingers, toes, everything crossed, we'll get uh, a as close to normal. Um, series of tournaments and events uh, that we're used to. Hopefully that will occur, but obviously it's a wait-and-see process. Yes, and I think we need to get used to the fact that we will see tennis more in geographical seasons. And uh, yes, the Australian summer comes to an end. I think it's been terrific for tennis. Just simply the fact that it's happened. But I also think that uh, as the weather warms up, um, people will start getting their clay court shoes on and uh, the socks will need to go in the wash after a few minutes on the red dirt. Absolutely. We've got plenty to look forward to. But that's it for us. Thank you, Chris. 
It's been wonderful having you here over the, the past weeks as we've been putting this podcast together and it's been great uh, to bring you these series of podcasts from here in Melbourne as we've covered what has been a rather unique Australian summer of tennis, the likes of which we may not see again. Uh, hopefully that we can return to some sort of normality in 12 months' time. Thank you for listening to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. It will continue into next week as we pass the baton on and we go to Europe. We're also in the United States. Plenty of news to talk about as well. But thank you for listening to our special podcast talking about tennis players and their mental health.